James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. As Christians face trials, they will also face temptations. With, so with every trial that we face, there comes along with it a temptation to sin. You found that, I'm sure, in your own experience. And James wants us to know that we are not above temptation. That we have not mastered temptation and sin. Uh, the Bible makes us face, and James makes us face here, the reality of indwelling sin. Sin is not something primarily outside of us, which we must guard ourselves against from getting in. Rather, sin is something that comes from within, from within our own hearts. As Jesus says in Matthew fifteen seventeen to 20, as he's uh, speaking with the Pharisees, Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? That the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. How many times have you heard the phrase or used the phrase that God looks upon the heart and not simply at what we do? And that phrase used as a comforting thing. I don't, I know I do bad things, but deep in my heart, I'm a good person. God doesn't judge me by what I do outwardly. He looks at, he looks at what's on the inside. He sees my heart. You might judge me for what I do, but God knows the heart. And yet Jesus here shows us what the heart really is. You know, it's our evil deeds that come forth from our heart, from our sinful hearts. This is called the sinful nature. This is what some believers call total depravity or a radical depravity. And this sinful nature is what we have inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. When they sinned, all humanity fell from its original goodness, and now all humans are born in sin and with a sinful nature. So you have recognized this. From the moment a human is able to choose right from wrong, what does he or she begin to choose? Wrong. Willingly. He willingly chooses wrong. From the moment he is able to choose. And this sinful nature is something that we still struggle with as Christians. We are not of the opinion that since we have come to faith in Christ and have been regenerated by his spirit that we no longer struggle with sin. We know this from Romans 7. Paul, the great apostle of our faith, struggles mightily with sin. He puts it in terms that would make us blush if we said it. The things that I hate, I find myself doing and the things that I want to do I somehow can't bring myself to do them the London Baptist Confession of Faith says 
this corrupt nature, this corruption of nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin. Basically, it means that we who are in Christ, who have been born again, we have been completely forgiven of our sins, we have died to our old self, and we have a new self in Christ, yet we still possess this corruption of nature, and we always will in this life. And James addresses this. And he wants his readers to know about temptation so that they will be able to fight against it. He shows us the source of temptation. He shows us the process of temptation. He shows us the ultimate result of temptation and sin if it is not resisted. So from this passage, I want you to see three truths about temptation itself. First, temptation does not come from God. Temptation to sin does not come from God. Second, temptation to sin comes from our own sinful desires. It doesn't come from God. Rather, temptation to sin comes from our own sinful desires. And third, allowing temptation to overcome us will lead us to sin, which can result in eternal destruction. Allowing temptation to overcome us will lead us to sin, and it can lead to eternal destruction. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, James says. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Temptation does not come from God. Now evidently, James is maybe aware of some who are saying this. Maybe he's heard rumblings of people who are saying this, or maybe he anticipates someone might say this as they're going through a trial, and in that trial they face a temptation. He anticipates someone will take this temptation and tend to blame it on God. Because that's how it works, right? We tend to blame our sins on other people. We even sometimes blame God for our sin. And what, what might this look like? Well, I can imagine someone maybe going through a financial trial and they say, God, why would you put me through this? Why would you put me in this situation where I can't give to your work? God, why would you put me in this situation where I have to fudge a little bit on my taxes or where I have to embezzle some money or I have to cheat here or there so that I can just have enough to make ends meet? Or we might imagine a person who is facing a temptation to sin sexually. And he might say, this is who you've made me to be, God. You've given me this predisposition, these tendencies towards sin. And it could be another temptation, say anger or or covetousness or greed or lying or gossip. Why did you make me this way, God? Why did you give me these, these tendencies that I have to wrestle with on a daily basis? And in these ways and in other ways, we lay the blame for our temptation and sin on God. Not to mention all the ways that we blame our sin on others. But we have this tendency to blame even God for our temptations to sin. Now we do see from earlier verses that James affirms that God tests his people. He tests his people. He tests our faith to reveal what is there in our hearts, to reveal the faith that is present, and then also to stretch us to trust Him more. 
But this is, this is not the same thing as tempting someone to sin. God's tests are meant to build up his people, to strengthen them. Rather than a tempting to sin would be to destroy, to tear down. And James rebukes anyone who would go a step further and say, well, not only is God testing me, he's also tempting me to fall. No, the temptation to sin does not come from God. And James grounds this statement in the very nature of who God is. First, God cannot be tempted to evil. That means he is absolutely unable to be tempted by sin. It's not like this temptation to evil is somehow outside and above God and it can exert its its force onto God. It's totally out of the question. And second, James says, God himself tempts no one. I think what he's getting at here is this would be completely contrary to the very nature of who God is. So we shouldn't lay the blame for our temptations on on God. Particularly, it is out of line with the nature of God's holiness. His purity. God is majestic. He is glorious. He is beyond all reproach. He alone is holy. And this is one characteristic of many that separates God from all of His creation. He is holy. And we are not. God is not just quantitatively different. Like, He's holier than us. He is qualitatively different than us. In that He is holy and we are not. How could a holy God induce someone to sin? He couldn't. He wouldn't. He cannot be tempted by evil. And He Himself tempts no one. So where does this temptation to sin come from? If not from God. And that leads us to our second truth about temptation. Temptation comes from our own sinful desires. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Now James is not ignorant of the devil's schemes. He knows that Satan himself, he knows your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring Lion seeking, seeking someone to devour. So, in chapter 4, verse 7, a little bit later, James says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But James wants to emphasize something else about temptation. He wants to emphasize something about the nature of the human heart. He wants to emphasize the responsibility, human responsibility, for temptation and sin. Temptation comes not from God but from our own sinful desires. Temptation to sin comes from within. Now it is true, I think, that some people are predisposed to sin in certain ways. I don't doubt that. Because of the fall of man and because of our own sinful nature, we are all just generally predisposed to sin. But this in no way puts the responsibility for sin on God. So someone might ask, well, Doesn't God ordain everything that comes to pass from beginning to end? Isn't He sovereign over all things, including His creatures? Absolutely. We believe that. We believe with the Westminster Confession of Faith that God from all eternity did by the most and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. 
nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Now we must admit there is some mystery here. We don't know all the inner workings of how this works. How is it that God is absolutely sovereign over all things, and yet we, in every day course of our lives, make choices and decisions which are pleasing or displeasing to God. We choose to sin. We don't quite fully know how all these things work out, but this is what the Bible teaches. We have to, we have to wrestle with that truth. Some things belong to God's knowledge and not to ours in this life. But I almost think that Paul would answer this in a, a different sort of way, similar to how he does in Romans uh, 9. Who are we, the clay, to talk back to the potter and say, why have you done things this way? Why have you made me this way? Rather, James' intention is not to ponder the complexities of sovereignty and human responsibility. Rather, he wants us to move our thoughts away from that to inspect the sinful desires of our own hearts, to recognize the origin of temptation and sin. And isn't this... The call of repentance and ultimately the call of salvation. Before you can recognize the grace that God, God gives you, you must rec- recognize the sinfulness of your own heart. You must take responsibility for your own sinful desires and sins. This is completely contrary to what we want to do, to take responsibility. So history is filled with fake apologies or weak apologies in which one politician, it's so easy to pick on them, right? The politicians, because they, they're so good at getting out of a jam. They're so good at shifting the blame on somebody else for something that they voted for, uh, that they didn't vote for, something that they did, a mistake that they made. And so we can easily see it in their lives. You probably recognize fake apologies from, uh, from not only politicians, but uh, movie stars, sports stars, and probably people in your own family, and probably people in your own work. And if you are really good at identifying this in your own life, have you ever made a fake apology? You shifted the blame, you dodged responsibility. History is filled with huge blunders that had massive consequences And the person responsible shifts the blame to someone else. I believe it was in uh, 2003 that the Columbia space shuttle uh, blew up, entering the atmosphere, breaking into bits and pieces over Texas and Louisiana, and seven people lost their lives. And listen to the response of the launch integration manager, Wayne Hale Jr., after this explosion. I had the opportunity and the information, and I failed to make use of it. I don't know what an inquest or a court law would say, but I stand condemned in the court of my own conscience to be guilty of not preventing the Columbia disaster. The bottom, bottom line is that I failed to understand what I was being told. I failed to stand up and be counted. Therefore, look no further. I am guilty of allowing the Columbia to crash. I don't know if he's a, a believer or not. 
But that's what an apology looks like. That's what a taking responsibility for your own mistakes looks like. And of all people in the world, we as believers should be able to set models, examples for confessing our sin, taking responsibility for how we have messed things up royally and admitting, yes, I am guilty as charged. This ought to take place in our fellowship of believers, readily owning up for sins against one another. This ought to take place in our workplaces. If we make a mistake, if we sin, if we do something wrong, not shifting the blame. How rare is it to see someone actually owning up to their mistakes? We have a, a vital opportunity, I think, in not only sharing the love of Christ and the truth of Christ through, through our successes, but especially through our weaknesses and failures. We of all people know how desperately we need a Savior. We should be setting the example in this, that we recognize that sin comes from our own hearts. That without Christ, we are hopeless. And this leads us to our third and final truth about temptation. Temptation does not come from God. Rather, it comes from our own sinful desires. And allowing temptation to overcome us will lead to sin, which can result in eternal destruction. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Take note of the anatomy of temptation and sin, or the process, the course that James lays out concerning temptation and sin. He gives us this detailed description of how this all works itself out. And he does so, I think, in order that we will recognize when it's happening happening to us. So we'll be able to step back from the situation that we're in, looking almost as an objective bystander in on it, and see, this is happening to me. I need to watch out. I need to guard against it. I need to fight against it. Like if you were standing in quicksand, what would be the first step to getting out of it? Recognizing you're in quicksand, (laughs) that you're in danger. I don't know all the details of how you get out. I'm sure there's a survival book or tip you can find on that. But first is recognizing the danger of your situation. And it may still take some difficulty, struggle getting out, but at least you've seen that you're in danger. And I think this is why James lays out this course of temptation and sin for us. So how does temptation work? It starts with a sinful desire in the human heart, James says. He intentionally uses uh, fishing and hunting metaphors that his readers would be familiar with. This sinful desire baits the hook and waits for the nibble. This sinful desire baits the trap and is ready to entrap you once you've taken the bait. Then once you have done that, once you've begin to entertain, begun to entertain the idea, to roll it over in, term, in your mind, you're carried off after it. You know this from personal experience, right? A sinful desire hits you seemingly out of nowhere. You're like, where did that come from? 
And then the next thing you know, you've been rolling it over in your mind for five minutes, for ten minutes, thinking, considering how you might accomplish the sin. You've been trapped. You've been carried away by this casual thought, by this sinful desire. See, James also uses this metaphor of of desire, this sinful desire, being a seducer. Once you've welcomed the desire into the home of your heart, it conceives and gives birth to sin. Sin is nourished and coddled. It grows up and matures, and then it has its own offspring, death itself. I love how scholar Craig Blomberg says this. One can almost envision three generations here. Desire as a parent, sin as its child, and death as its grandchild. This is how sin works. This is the dangerous process we must guard ourselves from. What begins as a casual thought leads to dwelling on that thought, leads to acts of sin, and which ultimately leads to eternal death. It's a chain reaction that starts with temptation to sin, which can earn, uh, end in eternal destruction. <clears throat> so let me plead with you for a moment here. Put sin to death before it can put you to death. John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. He says in another place, Let no man think to kill sin with a few easy or gentle strokes. He who hath once smitten a serpent, if he follow not his own blow until it be slain, may repent that he ever began the quarrel. And so he who undertakes to deal with sin and pursues it not constantly to death. So consider for yourself, brothers and sisters, how are you dealing with temptation and sin? How do you treat temptation and sin? Your tendency will be to coddle it, to think that it's not truly as bad as it really is. You'll see that other people's sins are worse than yours. You'll think that your sins are just small sins. If you do resist temptation, it will only be weakly, like you're swatting at a bug that's an annoyance. Scripture says to put it to death. Be ready to crucify the deeds of the flesh. So, brothers and sisters, what sins are you coddling? Treating them as if they were friends rather than enemies. It could be sins of bitterness which you are rolling around in your mind over and over again. Sins of anger that you allow to fester and to boil over every few days because you refuse to put them to death. Put them to death before they put you to death. And so how how do you put them to death? How do we put to death the deeds of the body? How can you begin to resist temptation and sin? I'm going to give you... I hate giving steps, so I don't know if I should call these steps or uh, just ideas to fight sin, but four steps... To fight against sin, to resist sin, in each beginning, you can kind of give them titles with the letter R. First is regeneration. 
first regeneration, before you can even begin to do real battle with sin, you must be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. This is what people refer to as the new birth or being born again. And we'll talk about this more next week because it's uh, skipping ahead a few verses. Look at verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. He chose to give us birth. That is, those who have come to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ are those who have been made new. They have been given new hearts. We who are in Christ have been given new hearts. Hearts that beat for doing what is right. Hearts that beat with a love for Christ and a desire to please God. Now this is the gospel of Christ. I don't want to assume that we know what we're talking about, that we remember what I'm referring to as the gospel. It's that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life of obedience to God. He suffered and bled and died on the cross for sinners as a substitute or sacrifice. And then he rose from the dead proving that he is who he said he was. The Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And the scripture teaches when you believe this message, when you trust in Christ to save you, you have been forgiven of all of your sins. Let that grace sink in. Not only have you been forgiven of all your sins, you have been reborn, regenerated. You've been given new desires. You have the Spirit of God living in you, empowering you to resist temptation, producing in you a life that is pleasing to God. So you will always be a slave to sin until you are freed by the work of Christ for you until you are regenerated by the Spirit of God. So first, regeneration. Second, you need to recognize if you are in Christ, you must recognize who you are in Christ. Your identity in Christ. You are a child of God. You've been freed from the law of sin and death. You've been welcomed into the family of God. And you have a heavenly Father who loves you and has accepted you completely because of Christ. This is who you are. Once you have been accepted by God in Christ, there is nothing that can separate you from His love. Ultimately, this is what you need to resist the temptation. The gospel. And Christian, you need the gospel just as much now as you ever have. You need this good news rattling around through your mind, through your heart, through our church, through our fellowships, so that we will be drawn again away from ourselves to faith in Christ. What you need to overcome sinful desires is a greater desire for the God who loved you and saved you by His grace. And as you meditate on the riches of His grace, the inheritance you have in Christ, sin will look increasingly ugly to you. As you feed on Christ and his benefits, you will find more and more that you desire sin less and less. First, regeneration. Second, recognize who you are in Christ. And third, root. If you want to resist sin, you must find its root. Every sin ultimately has a root. 
In other words, often we may simply deal with the fruit or the outward manifestation of sin without actually getting to the heart of why it is we're doing what we're doing. What is the idolatrous foundation of your anger? What is the idolatrous foundation of your bitterness or lust or gossip? If you want to be rid of sin, you'll have to peel back those layers to get down to the core. When you go to kill sin, you don't just go for an appendage. You aim for the heart. So we must discover the root. And fourth, we must resist. We must resist the temptation. If you want to be done with sin, you will need to exert effort in resisting. Grace is not opposed to effort, exertion. Because we know that the key to our justification or our being right with God, accepted by God, is the gospel of grace. It's completely by grace. We can't contribute anything to it except our need for a Savior. And that's the the same, I think, with your sanctification. Ultimately, the way that you're going to grow in grace is by the gospel. We grow in faith and obedience as we continue to believe and trust in Christ and His Word. But we shouldn't think that this resting in Christ excludes effort in resisting. It's not going to be a cakewalk to resist sin. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be trying. It's going to be a struggle. It is the daily battle of the mind. The daily battle of faith. To believe that what God says is true. To believe what James says here is true. Is it true that if I continue in this lifestyle of sin, it will lead to destruction? Is temptation and sin as dangerous as James says it is? We must fight to resist sin and believe the gospel. Is Christ strong enough to save me? Was his sacrifice good enough, great enough? Of enough value that all of my sins are forgiven. All of it? Is he willing to love me even though I can't bring myself to put sin to death every time? Friends, the answer to that question is yes. This is the grace of Christ. This is the grace of Christ for you. If you will trust him. So let us pray together. Dear Father, we have not enough strength in ourselves to resist and to put to death sin, these evil desires. We know that you are strong enough. We know that for those of us who are in Christ, you have regenerated us by your Holy Spirit, called us into your family. You have made us your own. You have empowered us by the Spirit and are producing fruit in us. We pray that you would fill us with an ever-increasing awareness of and trust in the gospel of your free grace in Christ Jesus. Because we want to hate sin more. So help us. Mold us into your image. Change us that we would desire Christ more and more every day, that we would desire Christ so that the things of this world would fade away into the periphery, produce in us 
greater love for you and for your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.